The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Very simply, the, the fact of the number of civilian deaths that we've seen in the past 20 years at the hands of the various governments and militaries that have been operating you know, worldwide. I mean, we have in Gaza over 20,000 reasons to, to do this work. We have the many thousands of Iraqis and Afghans who were killed, the Yemenis. I mean, there may be laws in place, but international humanitarian law, the, the laws of armed conflict that, that we know from the Geneva Conventions, is an incredibly low bar, right? It's don't purposefully kill civilians. Right, that's it. Don't purposefully do it. But it doesn't mean that, that killing civilians is a war crime. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 18th, 2023. Last month, the Department of Defense released its first ever policy on civilian harm reduction. But as Mark Garlasco recently wrote in Lawfare, quote, The policy comes at an awkward time. The U.S. military has issued guidance on how to protect civilians during operations, just as its close ally Israel has reportedly killed thousands of Palestinians with American bombs, end quote. And yet, many aspects of the new policy are nothing short of groundbreaking. I sat down with Mark, a former targeting professional and war crimes investigator and current military advisor at PAX, as well as Emily Tripp, the director of Air Wars, a transparency watchdog NGO which tracks, assesses, archives, and investigates civilian harm claims in conflict-affected nations. We discussed the state of civilian harm worldwide, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Pentagon's new policy, and recent efforts to get U.S. allies and partners to buy in. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 18th, Protecting Civilians in Gaza and Beyond, with Mark Arlasco and Emily Tripp. So, Mark and Emily, before we start, I wanted to do a bit of framing before we jump into the specifics of civilian casualties, uh, civilian protection, civilian harm mitigation and response. And I want to start by reading something that you wrote Mark, actually, for Lawfare in your piece about the Israeli Air Force General's justifications for its air war in Gaza. And you write, each of these points deserves scrutiny, but before proceeding, I want to address one important aspect of this legalistic approach. I will be discussing the taking of human life in a clinical way. And while that is necessary when discussing the laws of war and the tactics, techniques, and procedures the military applies in kinetic operations, I'm aware this approach fails the victims of both sides. So I wanted to open up the opportunity to both of you to, to frame the conversation um, in any way that you, you want before we, like I said, get into some of these specifics. And Mark, I can start with you. Hey, thanks. I, I, and I appreciate you starting that way. So I've been, I've been working in this space for over 20 years now and started in the targeting world in the Pentagon and then transitioned very rapidly from uh, working on targeting 
to investigating civilian harm on the ground in Iraq and then many other conflicts worldwide. And something that you don't get in, you know, in that uh, very hermetically sealed, you know, building type way of looking at things is the reality on the ground, what it's like for civilians to experience war, to experience loss and conflict and all of the things that go with it. And I, I, I was very affected by that. And so for the past 20 years, I've been complaining about the Department of Defense and, and other militaries and, and how they deal with civilian harm. Uh, because I've seen it up close, right? And I've, I've spoken to witnesses and victims and, and tried to understand what, their, what, what happened to them and, and how, how they experienced it. And now with the, the U.S. going forward with this policy that we're going to speak about, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about it and uh, I still have concerns, et cetera. But it's, for me, it's always very grounded in the reality that we are talking about the taking of human life. And, you know, we're going to discuss things like proportionality and distinction and be very legalistic. And, you know, they have to have their data management in place and use the right bombs, don't use the wrong bombs. And I feel like sometimes that just comes off the wrong way, right? Like you're saying, Mark, how can you tell Israel use these bombs instead of these other bombs when, you know, children are being slaughtered? And what is the point of, of that? And so I, I, I think it's important for us to at least frame it by saying that militaries can do a better job. They have recognized that. And this policy moving forward is a result of that recognition. But let's never forget why it's happened. It's happened because of 20 years of failure, 20 years of civilian casualties at extremely high rates uh, when we we could have done better. And, and I'm hopeful that this is a step towards better protecting civilians in conflict. Thanks for that. Yeah. Emily, did you have any reaction to that or any framing that you'd like to offer at the outset? Yeah. I mean, I, just to echo uh, what Mark was saying there, I th the big thing for me has always been the kind of dissonance between what the state says they do and kind of the narrative around the justifications for war and then the very real consequences of them. I started my career in the humanitarian uh, field, so I was in places like Raqqa and, and kind of in Syria and Iraq, and and yeah, this kind of cognitive dissonance I think between you know the wars that were being fought in my name, essentially by my government, um, and then the reality uh, around me of kind of chaos and, and civilian harm at levels that you know my friends and my family back home didn't know about at all, and so I think it's important to acknowledge that, but also important to acknowledge, you know, at the outset, I myself have not lived through conflict. Um, and uh, so when we talk through these conversations, and when I talk about the policies, I'm talking about them kind of from the position of somebody who is looking really for accountability for my government, but also kind of driven by a sense of uh, humanity and empathy uh, for others. But I think something that in the NGO world and in, in the policy world, we, we're not very good at is making sure that we really include civilian voices and those affected by conflict in these discussions. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about kind of the implications and how that could work and should work when it comes to military policy and practice. But I think it's important, yeah, also to kind of recognize that up top. Something that we really try and do at Air Wars, I mean, I will be talking a lot about kind of data and data points um, and 
indeed every single uh, data point is a life lost. And what we try and do is kind of capture the stories and biographies and, you know, richness of the human experience far beyond the marking point of, of somebody's death. You know, I think it's important to recognize that we're really talking about the most lethal arm of the state here, which is not always the defining point of someone's experience, um, even though that's how they come to be defined when we talk about them as a kind of set of, of examples or, or, or data uh, that could and, and should influence policy. Yeah, thank you both for that. And I definitely do want to get into you know how how to bring in the voices of, of civilians affected by conflict a bit later. Um, but first, Mark, I want to I want to turn to you for a bit more framing when we talk about civilian harm mitigation response. Can you break down those terms for the listeners? What does the DOD mean when they say civilian harm? What do some other governments mean? Is there a dissonance between some of those things? Um, so yeah, Mark, Mark, I'll start with you. And, and Emily, I would love to bring you in afterwards as well. Yeah, sure. At, at its most simplest, right, the difference between civilian casualties and civilian harm is that civilian casualties are the, the deaths and injuries that are caused in, in warfare. And civilian harm encompasses those deaths and injuries, but also more than that, right? It's the secondary effects and the long-term effects. So things like you've lost your home uh, and now you are in a displaced person. And, and how does that affect your life? Uh, you no longer have an income. Uh, you have a mental, mental harm that's been, been caused. You can't get to the hospital because the bridge between where you live and, and the hospital is destroyed. And so you have all of these long-term effects that occur. So it's not just the deaths and injuries that you're taking, but it's all of these other things. And I think it's, it's remarkable how militaries and states have, have moved away from this CIVCAS, right? Civilian casualties, and are now using the term civilian harm that NGOs have been using for, for so long. Does not mean that they always use it in the same way, and you know when we look at the new Department of Defense instruction on on, on civilian harm mitigation and response, like you know I, I look at their definition, and you know it's 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 a, a little bit stilted, right? So I, I look at their definition, and you know they 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 say uh, they have terms in there like other other adverse effects, uh, which which is is kind of striking to me. So here's the Department of Defense's rather hackneyed definition of civilian harm, right? It is civilian casualties and damage to or destruction of civilian objects, and then they have parens, which do not constitute military objectives on the law of war, that are resulting from military operations. And, and they could stop right there and that would be fine. It'd be a good definition, right? So, so the people who get harmed, but get hurt, and the damage caused by the military. Boom, real simple. But then they, I guess, gave it to the lawyers and they added, as a matter of Department of Defense policy, other adverse effects on the civilian population and the personnel, organizations, resources, infrastructure, essential services, and systems on which life depends resulting from military operations are also considered in civilian harm mitigation response efforts to the extent practical. These other effects do not include mere inconveniences. And I think that is a point where Emily and I kind of roll our eyes back because the harm that's being meted out to people is not a mere inconvenience. So just to put a, a final dot on that, you know, yes, NGOs and militaries don't have perhaps the exact same definition of, of what civilian harm is, uh, but it's heartening, I think, to see 
militaries move in the direction of including more things than just civilian deaths and injuries. Yeah, Mark, and if I'm not mistaken, I think you mentioned this other adverse effects, uh, something like lipstick applied by a lawyer to the proverbial pig when you <laughs> wrote about it for us um, in Lawfare. But Emily, I want to go go back to you. I'd love to get your take on, on Mark's definition. And then also, if you could maybe give us the sort of state of civilian harm today. Air Wars, along with um, you know the, this, the casualty reporting network that Air Wars is a part of, doesn't only track, you know, the war in Gaza right now, for example, but has this sort of worldview. And I'm curious, yeah, your, your, your take on the, the state of civilian harm in the world today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think just to pick up on what, what Mark was saying so much about, you know, so much of what these policies are about when it comes to the Department of Defense instruction or the civilian harm action plan or any kind of um, statement made by either Biden or, or, or the Secretary of Defense. I mean, all of these are in some ways about kind of very clear uh, policies and systems and practices that need to be um, put in place. But they're also about a kind of conceptual approach to civilian harm and a narrative. And they reflect a, a mindset and a mentality and a, and a reshifting, perhaps, hopefully, uh, of priorities, except for when sentences are included like mere inconveniences. And I think we shouldn't understate the kind of narrative importance of including caveats like that because, as Mark said, you know, it is insulting. I mean, the idea that you could live through a war and have the, you know, your whole world turned upside down and your life could be separated, you know, this experience could be separated into inconveniences and harms and uh, objects and, you know, all, all of those kind of categorizations. I mean, I think it's removing the dignity of uh, the victims of conflict. And I think when we lose sight of that, we, we do lose sight of what these policies and practices are meant to, to be about. And then to kind of reflect on the state of civilian harm, I mean, yes, I mean, we're, we're talking at, you know, one of the most deadly moments for civilians, probably, uh, you know, in our lifetimes. And it's difficult to kind of capture that and the weight of that in one breath. Um, I will say, I mean, what what we've been doing at Air Wars, we've been documenting harm, particularly from US actions since 2014, so almost a decade now. Uh, we really started um, by looking at the unreported harm events uh, that were taking place, kind of unreported in international media, that is, from uh, US drone strikes. Um, so we have a huge archive, for example, of um, harms reported locally in Yemen. We've been documenting uh, US actions and, and the civilian consequences of those in Somalia, for example, for a long time. And of course, the war against ISIS and these you know, enormous urban battles of Raqqa and, and Mosul. The state of civilian harm as it is now, I mean, thousands of those deaths have yet to be acknowledged by the US and allies. Um, we estimate that at minimum, um, there are about 8,000 civilians that we think were killed as a result of uh, US and allied actions in the war against ISIS. The Americans themselves have admitted to about 1,400, um, so really just a fraction of that total. And when you reflect on the many, many cases that they've also rejected. Um, we're talking about some you know, more than 2,000 cases that they've rejected. We're really thinking of a state of civilian harm of questions, unresolved questions, um, you know, unacknowledged deaths, 
we're talking about incremental changes um, and, you know, prospects of hope uh, for civilians. But there are certain things also I think it's important to highlight. I mean, the the US government has a system where they should be spending money essentially on compensating uh, victims of conflict. Um, there's $3 million annually that is kind of demarcated for this compensation uh, process, but no payments have been made in 2020. I think one payment was made in 2021. You have organizations like the Zomia Center who are completely brilliant, um, who are trying to kind of tirelessly bang at the doors um, of the US government and say, look, you know, you've admitted to 1400 deaths, where's the compensation for it? And, you know, it's a very, very difficult process that's really been driven by civil society. So just in a kind of nutshell, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge the weight of unresolved claims and also the efforts that are being made by others to try and make sure that those are acknowledged at this granular level, even as we talk about kind of policy change. Thanks for that. And Mark, before I turn to you to walk us through the the, the new DOD policy, Emily, could you just lay out quickly what international law dictates uh, in terms of states' obligations in reporting civilian harm, civilian casualties, and, and why maybe states have fallen short of that obligation? Yeah. So, I mean, under international law and the laws of armed conflict, I mean, states, in order to show compliance, are meant to show that they are adhering to principles of proportionality and distinction. Um, so there has to be some element of understanding who they're killing uh, in the targeting process to show compliance with the law of armed conflict. That's where you get language around kind of discrimination of, um, you know, indiscriminate um, bombing and campaigns and things like that. Last year, there was a really um, important move in the UN Human Rights Council, which essentially made the connection between the fulfillment of human rights obligations and casualty recording. So this was the first time and there were lots of states which kind of signed on to this and supported it and a huge study that was released by OHCHR which essentially says look casualty recording is an obligation amongst states who are looking to comply with various other human rights obligations for example um, you know the right to truth the right to dignity and so being able to kind of track casualties that are kind of um, caused by your own militaries is an integral part of that new kind of human rights council report and also a norm. There's also a a new declaration, this political declaration on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, which was signed by 83 states, including the US um, back in November 2022. So this is a kind of political declaration, but it's, you know, UN backed process um, and certainly part of the kind of international order. And there's a significant part of that, which says states are obliged to track casualties resulting from their actions. There are some nice caveats in there as always, uh, such as the words where appropriate. Um, But if you're an organization like mine, you always think it's appropriate. So this is the kind of move in the the casualty recording world. However, um, I think it's important to say that this is not normal practice. I mean, you have, as I said, the US has admitted to a certain number, a certain proportion of uh, incidents in the war against ISIS, it has not in others and other conflicts that it's involved in. For example, the reporting on civilian deaths in uh, Somalia is very sparse and few and far between. And other states, such as where I'm from, the United Kingdom, has only ever admitted to killing one civilian in the war against ISIS, which I think anybody thinking on or reflecting on, uh, even logically, given the fact that the UK was so involved in um, intense campaigns such as the Battle for Raqqa, is a little ridiculous. So... I think that's kind of where the international norms are. You have these declarations, you have Human Rights Council, you have parts of international humanitarian law, which are about proportionality. um, And then you have what the reality of states are doing, which is, I would say, uh, certainly not enough. 
So keeping in mind where states like the U.S. fall short of these realities, Mark, you're going to tell us why this is all about to change with the new DOD policy, and it's all about to improve. Can you walk us through uh, the, the new the new DOD policy, its development, You know what motivated uh, its development, if, if you have a sort of potted history to walk us through how, how we got to, to this point uh, when the DOD released its instruction uh, last month? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, a history of the civilian harm uh, mitigation and response work for the U.S. in, you know, a, a, a real tight bu- bullet here. So it grew out of the the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and ISIS, where you had, you know, 20 years of, of failed U.S. policy on, on civilian harm, where there were very high numbers of civilian casualties, uh, very poor understanding of how and why civilians were being harmed uh, to, to try to mitigate and change those things. And there was a recognition of this. And it really started in, in 2007 in Afghanistan uh, during the NATO mission, which is called ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force. And there was a U.S. general, General McNeil, and there were a number of very high CIVCAS incidents, civilians being killed and injured, in uh, particularly in U.S. airstrikes. So a lot of this was driven initially by airstrikes, although there are a lot of other types of harm that happened on the ground uh, that were also part of it. But because of the high number of, of civcas from airstrikes, he said, well, how many civilians are we killing? How many civilians have died? And the response was, we're not counting. We don't know. And so he said, okay, so we're going to start counting. And so they began tracking in 2008. ISAF began to do that. And there was, uh, again, uh, there was a big incident in Asadabad, uh, which is in Afghanistan. There was a special operations forces, forces mission. And we, we see time and again, U.S. policy on this is, is very reactive, right? So there's an event, and then they, they try to course correct. And, and that's largely the, the history of this. So there was the Asadabad incident with special operations forces. Uh, use a C-130, which is a, a, a slow-flying aircraft with a, a, a howitzer sticking out the side, right, 105-millimeter cannon. And they were blowing away uh, a, a village in Afghanistan, and, and about 100 civilians were killed. And growing out of that, the civilian casualty tracking cell was created in NATO, where they started to actually count and account for how civilians were, were, were being killed. And then they, they shifted that in 2011 to a mitigation team. So the idea that, well, we can't just count, right? We have to make changes, right? We, as these numbers go up, what is the point if we don't understand how and why civilians are being killed so that we can fix things? And they started to do that. And, and some of it worked very well. Some of it needed, needed some, some tweaking, uh, but it was groundbreaking at the time. Uh, no one else was was doing this, and and, and NATO had taken this on uh, wholeheartedly. Then the NATO mission stood down at the end of 2014, and this work largely kind of took a, a, a side. Right, it, it it just got much more quiet. They they downsized from over a dozen personnel just for Afghanistan down to two people for multiple conflicts covering Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. And really, we saw this moving moving off to the side and it wasn't being focused on enough. So the Congress stepped in. And in 2019, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, the Congress mandated that the U.S. create some kind of a civilian harm uh, mitigation plan, right? And a, a policy to deal with all of, of, of the U.S. military. And this is really uh, revolutionary. So up until 2019, when this was, was put into the NDAA, 
it was each of the combatant commands and the way the US military operates is you have combatant commands that deal with geographic and other areas that they work in and they determine how they're going to look at civilian casualties, how they're going to assess it, how they're going to investigate it and, and respond to it. But this is saying, okay, we need a policy that goes across the entire US military and it's going to deal with everyone at a at a certain level. And there's going to be standardization. And yes, we understand that some of the combatant commands are going to have different needs because of the different geographies, the area of, of operations that they have, but there's going to be standardization. So they began in 2019 on uh, the Trump administration to start to work on the action plan, but it, it took a while. And it really wasn't until then, as I said, you know, they become very reactive. Uh, we had some incidents again happen. And the one that really sparked things and sparked the the the, the chimrap as we call it civilian harm mitigation response action plan to actually be built as strong and uh, as as vibrant as as we see it now was an airstrike in uh, in Afghanistan in Kabul uh, the last day of the U.S. pullout where uh, a, a a family was killed. Uh, you had a number of, of women, a number of children, uh, and a an aid worker were killed in you know the very famous righteous strike, uh, which we then learned was was a mistake, and was an example of how the U.S. needs to better learn from its mistakes in the past so that they don't happen again in the future. Now, Secretary Austin, to his great credit, took this on wholeheartedly, and he really turned this into a legacy item for him. Right, this is part of his legacy. This idea that the U.S. military needs to go above and beyond just the meager requirements of international humanitarian law and protect civilians at a, at a much higher level. So Secretary Austin uh, put in a requirement for the plan to be created. Uh, that requirement was put out in, uh, in 2022. Uh, the plan then moved forward, but needed what was called a DOTI, a Department of Defense Instruction. And this is basically something that says, okay, you've got a plan and a plan is great, but a plan can go away. Uh, but a policy is something that is going to be lasting. And also an instruction tells the military, this is how you're going to implement it, right? It's an implementation document. And so that has just recently come out. And so now the military is moving forward with hiring over 160 specialists in the protection of civilians, in putting in place uh, tactic techniques and procedures to improve its targeting, its data management, how it deals with amends, uh, which is how you you know provide a recompense to people uh, after a strike has happened. Also, uh, speaking of understanding the civilian environment and dealing with your allies, because it's not just you, right? So if the U.S. is operating in a multinational or in a, uh, a bilateral uh, operation, if the U.S. ally kills civilians, that is going to, you know, one, come back on the U.S., which is a, a, a negative for them. But, you know, civilians have been killed. And, and so the U.S. needs to, as part of this plan, also deal with its allies. So it's a very all-encompassing plan. It's very forward-leaning, and it needs to be implemented. And we're going to see, you know, the devil's going to be in the details and how they implement it. But that's kind of a quick and dirty on how this plan came into being. Great. And one quick follow-up on that plan policy distinction mark how easily you said you know an action plan is more ephemeral i guess it could go away but a policy is is a bit more durable and and sustainable ha, say you know we're we're in an election year in the united states here say a, a donald trump administration comes in again next year how easily could 
that administration, for example, ignore this policy or not? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the way that the US Congress went about uh, appropriating funds for this plan uh, and for the policy, putting it into the, we like to say it's in the cement of the Pentagon now, and really making it part of what the different combatant commands are required to do. Could it be removed? Sure. It would be very painful. I think it would be very hard. You're talking about removing, you know, 160 positions, changing targeting policies and manuals, the way that you deal with harm, let alone, you know, the backlash that they would get for removing such a very positive and, 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 and forward thinking policy. But that said, you know, things could be done beyond just removing the policy, right? So you could have a, a, a degradation of importance. You could have a removal of funds. Uh, things like that. I think it's possible that a, a future administration could come in and make waves and make problems for this. But I, I have to say, this is something that it's not that the NGOs have said, hey, military, you guys need to create this. This is a policy that the military wants. This is a policy they've asked for and that they have created. And so I, I, I don't see a Trump administration, a Republican administration, a Democrat administration. I don't think this is a, a Republican or a Democrat issue, right? This is how the U.S. military deals with the actions that it takes in the field. Because let's let's look at this from a military point of view real quick. If a weapon is dropped on a target and that target is missed and civilians are killed, right? That's a problem because you've got dead civilians, you've you've caused harm, and you've got you know potentially a media effect. But you also have your target is still at large doing bad things. And so you as a military want to engage your target and remove that target without unduly harming civilians. So this is a, a win-win for, for the military, I think. And a lot of the processes and procedures that this is putting in place is going to lead to, I think, much more positive outcomes for the military. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. 
therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. 
So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Emily, I want to get your reaction on the so-called DOTI. When the new policy was released, I'm curious what you found encouraging in it, where you think it still falls short. Not to ask you to speak for the the entire uh, human rights NGO community, uh, but yeah, I, you know what you heard from from Air Wars, uh, your Air Wars colleagues, and and you know your your initial impressions. Yeah, I mean it's a long document, firstly, <laughs> so I think it's it's still going to take some time for everybody to really go through it in a huge amount of detail. And as Mark said, I mean the devil is really in the details, and how it's implemented, I think, is going to be the kind of key question. I think there were lots of things in here that we were really pleased to see. I mean purely kind of from a civilian harm assessment perspective. These may seem a little granular and obsessive, um, but I think they're really important, um, is that as part of this instruction, for example, they've now committed to including specific codes per allegation uh, that can then be shared and kind of disseminated amongst the um, publicly amongst uh, the community. And this may seem a kind of, yeah, as I said, like a very niche point, um, but it's a really important one because it essentially means that if an organisation or an individual refers a civilian harm incident to the US government or the US military, that particular harm incident can then be tracked throughout the system. And I think when you're dealing with, you know, we could be potentially looking into a world of very, you know, large scale combat operations, as they're called, potentially mass casualty uh, incidents in very, you know, complex environments, having this approach where actually you treat each potential allegation of harm as a single incident and you give it the kind of you know data management infrastructure essentially that you need means that there is greater potential for accountability for each of those cases so these are kind of like small details within the department of defense instruction that as an organization that is kind of in the business of of, of tracking um, casualties i think is really important there are also things which kind of align to best practice so for example um, there's a, a an admission in the in the or a kind of commitment in the document of of working towards uh, casualty ranges, for example. So this kind of, again, it seems like a small issue, but actually it's really important in that it's saying, you know, the US themselves are saying, we may not always know exactly how many civilians we killed, um, but when we start to admit civilian harm, we will do it in a range so that we can show kind of more likely than not, which has always been their commitment ostensibly, um, that they killed civilians. So it's this kind of listening to the casualty recording community, as as you mentioned, kind of at the beginning, we're part of this casualty recorders network, understanding the kind of ranges potentially of of casualties per incident is a really important detail that is included in the Department of Defense Instruction. So I'm not going to go through all of of these different things because, you know, yeah, I'm also following Mark's very succinct answer on the whole history of the (laughs) civilian harm policy in in, uh, the US. But these are kind of really small details that I think the DODI includes that's really important to kind of keep an eye on, essentially. There are also some kind of things in here around the details around when 
civilian harm should be um, reported on and what would kind of account for a, a civilian harm allegation, which we've never actually had clarity on before. So there's a, a, a sentence in the Dodi that says responses may be made after time has passed, which potentially means, for example, for, for organisations like the Zomia Centre that I mentioned before, or others who are trying to kind of seek accountability for individual allegations, it means potentially we could look back at past cases and think through all of those you know, unresolved harm questions that I mentioned before and, and start to kind of figure out a way to get accountability in response to them. But of course, uh, this doesn't mean that there's a kind of rosy picture when it comes to the Department of Defence instruction. And I think it's important to kind of consider some of these kind of key areas that we need to improve on and really see this as a kind of first step rather than a kind of be all end all policy that's going to change the world. I think, you know, one of the big things for me is that this is, you know, really a, a policy that is lacking in, you know, some some details when it comes to, for example, um, allegations around location, location specificity. As Mark said, you know, the, the definition of civilian harm has this tiny, kind of like arrogant language around inconveniences that when it comes to civilians, I mean, these are all things that are not helpful. There's also a lot in here, I think, when you really go into the details around, you know, the commitments to allies and partners that raise significant questions. I mean, as the Dodi came out in, what was it, around Christmas. We're already in a situation where the UK and the US are conducting joint operations and strikes in Yemen. And not once has there been a recognition or kind of commitment or recommitment to the kind of policy state in the Dodi when it comes to ensuring that allies and partners have a kind of shared understanding of civilian harm. You know, as I said, the British uh, mentality and approach when it comes to uh, admitting civilian harm from their actions is so far away from from any of the language and commitments that are outlined in the Dodi. And yet it seems not to really be uh, an issue when it came to deciding to conduct joint operations. So I think these are the kind of big questions that we're going to be starting to push into and say, okay, now you've made this commitment, what does it mean? What does it mean when you say you're going to accept a civilian harm allegation because of some kind of reference to where it happened? I mean, what does that actually mean when it comes to um, referral mechanisms, for example? Um, Or what does it mean when you say, okay, we're going to make sure that allies and partners kind of have the same approach to civilian harm tracking? And and I think that's kind of, um, yeah, big things that, that we'll be looking out for this year. Yeah, thanks, Emily. And there's no need to apologize for, I think you said granular, obsessive, and niche. I think that's safe to say that's Lawfare's sweet spot. So we welcome those kinds of answers. Uh, Mark, I want to turn it over to you. Uh, any reactions to what Emily said? And then same question, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly of the, the Dodi. Yeah, I just want to pick up on on how Emily just ended that and the importance of how we deal with allies and partners and the awkward way, unfortunately, in which the Dodi was issued. You know, instead of Secretary Austin coming out in a very public manner uh, with some fanfare saying, hey, you know, we've put together this policy that's going to protect and save civilians in military operations, it was very quietly let out on a Thursday before Christmas. And there's a reason for that. It's a quite awkward time when we're seeing a conflict that a US ally is conducting in which thousands of civilians have been killed, in which over a million people have been internally displaced. You have a large percentage of Gaza uh, that is now completely unlivable because all of the buildings and infrastructure are completely destroyed. And yet the US is putting out this, this policy that is so forward-leaning and they are going to improve the way they protect civilians. And we're also going to ask our allies to do that. And yet one of the US's closest allies is using US weapons to just decimate a civilian population. And I look at how the 
the dodi, this instruction, deals with that. And it's it's unfortunate. And it's one of my big negatives for, for the document. It creates what are called CBAPs, right? The, the Civilian Harm Baseline Assessment of Allies and Partners. And so for each of your allies and partners that your military operates with, they're going to say, hey, do they have adequate civilian harm mitigation processes in, in, in place? You know, so for example, the US military has recently sold AH-1 Zulu attack helicopters to Nigeria. And as part of that agreement, the Nigerians had to agree to have the U.S. come in and assist them with creating civilian harm mitigation processes, right? So these CBAPs create an additive policy. So if our ally is not doing as good a job as they could be or should be doing, what do we as the U.S. have to do? What can we do to assist them to bring them up to snuff? But there's there's nothing in there that says, hey, we're going to stop sending weapons, or we're going to we're going to put in some kind of a, a requirement of, of what they're going to have to do, how they're going to look at at civilians, and and so it, instead of being a, a, a reductive or, or, or take away, it's an additive policy, and I think that that's just unfortunate, and it's an opportunity missed because it's going to be difficult to see how, while yes, this has a, an important. A multinational and security cooperation section within both the, the Civilian Harm Mitigation Response Action Plan and the instruction, it just doesn't really do it to the point where when we see a conflict where a US ally is conducting offensive operations and just killing large swaths of civilians, you know, really not complying with international humanitarian law. And it, it just doesn't have that kind of bite that I, I think that it should have. Looking at it as as a whole, you know, on another negative side, there are a lot of shoulds in there, uh, not as many musts. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm splitting hairs, and on on the whole, if you would have told me three years ago when I started at PAX, uh, which is the Dutch NGO where I'm working, and said, "Hey, Mark, you know, uh, the U.S. is going to is, is creating this policy, and in three years, this is the policy that they're going to have," I would have just been absolutely shocked. Uh, it's it's groundbreaking. Uh, it's got an awful lot in there. I think the NGO community is a little worried uh, because there's just so much in there that has to be done and implementation is going to be a huge issue. But we're also standing by to assist. And I think one of the really positive things about how the plan was created is that the Department of Defense turned to NGOs turn to people like Emily and to myself and to others and other organizations like Civilians in Conflict, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, brought us all in and said, okay, what do we need to do? And really made us part of the process. And I think that that's reflective in in the generally very high quality documents that we've been given. Now, Emily, looking outward now, what ripple effects have you seen the new DOD policy having among, especially among US allies, NATO, the Dutch, the UK, have these ripple effects been intentional or and have some been unintentional? I guess I would say I, I wish there would be more ripple effects in my country, in the UK. Um, I think, I mean, the Dutch have been on their own 
uh, journey with this um, in a in a similar sense. You know, I mean, let's not forget that the impetus, I think, as Mark mentioned, for these policies um, rarely comes out of a kind of um, a brainwave that's happened uh, in the middle of the night uh, by by a minister of defence or, or a secretary of defence. I mean, they come on the back of often very awful uh, mass casualties, civilian casualty events that are then raised in in the media. And the same happened in in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands um, were involved in a strike in in Iraq on Hawija that killed about 70 civilians. And and there was all sorts of kind of things that happened in response to that. But I think what the what we have seen in our, at least our advocacy with the Dutch in the last few years has been a real study of the Jimrap and understanding how, if the Americans are doing it on this scale, and they're investing this many millions of dollars uh, and this, you know, this much personnel uh, in, into this policy. What does that mean for potentially a smaller state uh, like uh, the Netherlands, kind of comparatively, um, that also has that kind of impetus? And so I think that's been a kind of uh, mindset that's been really helpful as we've gone in and said, look, you know, you were all part of the same coalition in the war against ISIS. Um, the Americans admitted to all of these deaths. Um, and we know proportionally uh, some of those will be yours. Um, now they're looking at it as a way of kind of... Um, implementing systems. Um, So that's been really helpful. I think the key takeaway that we're seeing amongst states is the importance of high-level buy-in when it comes to civilian protection, particularly within the military itself. I mean, as Mark was saying, you know, lots of what you see within these policies when you go at that really granular level are questions of military practice and, and, and military doctrine. And I think that's what has always kind of at least in, in Europe been seen as a kind of political conversation or a kind of political com- you know commitment or a, an, maybe an ideological discussion um, actually is then starting to be ingrained much more within the, the military community. So I think that's been the kind of key, key ripple effect. But, uh, you know, I mean, NATO has had their protection of civilians policy for a while. Um, and yeah, I won't go into all the details around that, but there are many elements of that policy which, you know, uh, don't necessarily touch upon on many of the things that the, the Civilian Harm Mitigation Action Plan or the DODI does. One thing I will say is that over on this side of the pond, um, many times the issues of civilian protection have been kind of segregated into slightly different areas. So here in the UK, um, often these come under what's called human security, or it might come under questions of women, peace and security, or kind of child protection. And those that essentially means that, you know, the topics of civilian protection are kind of siloed into these thematic issues. And I think what the Chimrap did and what the Dodi has done is say, you know, those are all very well and they have to, you know, they're important and we should invest time into these kind of thematic areas. But you can talk about civilian protection as a whole issue um, that affects so many different levels, um, whether that's training or practice or policy or whatever it is that isn't just this kind of one thematic um, and I hope that that's the kind of ripple effect that we'll see kind of a- across um, other states as they try and think through um, how to implement it. Mark and I just came back from a meeting in the Netherlands where there's a kind of contact group of I think that the Netherlands and the Americans are trying to kind of pull together like-minded states on this issue and to their credit you know they had a day um, as part of this kind of very early stage meetings where they invited, you know, independent experts to come in and say, um, this is how we've been doing things with the Americans um, and with the Dutch. And this is, you know, a kind of roadmap potentially for for how we could engage um, in other states. But we're always subject to the whims of states being uh, either open to these conversations or willing to even enter into these conversations with civil society groups and, and, and third parties, essentially. Mark, what have you seen in terms of the the buy-in or take-up among U.S. allies and partners? Yeah, so it's it's 
not just NATO nations, right? So this this meeting that we were at, we were at had uh, had mostly NATO nations and and some some non NATO uh, U.S. allies as well. Uh, but we're also seeing a movement in the United Nations, uh, and that's something that's very new and exciting. So uh, we were out, uh, Emily and I and others, we were all out in uh, in Entebbe in Uganda uh, a couple of years ago at the very first UN meeting on uh, civilian harm mitigation. And they brought out all of the uh, UN peacekeeping uh, operations there. And something we have to we have to recognize about civilian harm mitigation is you're talking about protecting civilians from your own actions, right? That's what it's about. It's about if I'm having military operations, I'm going to make sure that I don't unduly harm civilians. But that was a really hard sell within the the United Nations system, right? You're trying the UN is pushing back, saying, "Hey, we're peacekeepers. We don't harm people." But the reality is they do, and they oftentimes don't see it. And by bringing together all of the different peacekeeping uh, operations under one roof for a week and really working through a lot of the issues in a, in a really tough workshop where we also had some, some NATO militaries there as well, you know, you had them talking about how, hey, it's not just some, when you shoot somebody, right? If we're flying a helicopter on, on a mission and that helicopter flies low and pulls the roof off of someone's house that's harm. And we need to recognize that. And we have to, to deal with that. And there were a lot of very positive stories from different UN peacekeeping operations about how, hey, if we did this in this situation, we were able to protect civilians from our actions. And so, yes, we do need civilian harm. And it was just as we saw militaries saying, hey, we need to implement some of these civilian harm mitigation and response policies, you now have UN peacekeeping operations reaching up to UN headquarters saying, hey, we need this as well. And so we were just at Protection of Civilians Week a few months ago at, at UN headquarters here in New York. And we had a meeting of all of the different UN military groups there. So you had military reps from, from, from all of the member states speaking directly about civilian harm mitigation and calling on the UN to, to implement this, to put in civilian harm mitigation into different requirements and mandates for the the peacekeeping uh, operation. So it's moving beyond just the militaries. It's, I, I really see this as a wave moving forward. It's incumbent upon us now to, you know, to grab on and, and make sure we ride this wave and make sure it's implemented in, in such a way that it's going to have a positive effect, right? One of the negatives that I saw in Entebbe, for example, were disagreements on very basic definitional issues, you know, not just harm, response, amends. What does it mean to, to provide amends to someone? How do we do this? What are the legal issues? So there's a lot that needs to be worked out, but I'm, I'm feeling very positive about the direction things are heading in. Yeah, and Emily, I'm I'm also curious your outlook uh, in in terms of um, positivity or, or pessimism. Mark mentioned that the the Dodi came at a at an awkward time for the United States. It also came at a it comes at a tragic time um, where we see you know mass civilian casualties in Gaza and elsewhere. So with these new policies coming out, should we be pessimistic? Um, you know, is war just war and 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 people will die, or or do you also have a somewhat positive outlook looking forward? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think we have to be positive to some extent to keep doing this work. So I think we have to believe that there will be incremental change and that that change will lead to um, differences in the way war is waged. I mean, I think, you know, not just this civilian protection action plan, but also the, you know, explosive weapons declaration. I think there is hope for 
a new norm um, to be developed and a new normative framework for war, which says collateral damage isn't something we should take for granted and it isn't inevitable. And civilians not only should be kind of protected, but also uh, prioritised and treated with dignity. I mean, I think what we're seeing now is a lack of humanity and a lack of empathy uh, for individuals affected by conflict. And so it's very difficult for me to, to, to be positive, I think, like simply because of what's happening in that, you know, every single day, you know, at least us at Air Wars, we're trying to grapple with how do you document uh, civilian harm on a scale that we haven't seen uh, in this century. And I think the silence from the US towards Israel has been deafening. I mean, it's really, it's really shocking and it's depressing. And I think that's, so it's very hard to kind of sit here and say, yes, I I feel positive, even though um, kind of some element of hope is needed to continue the work, which I do feel is really important. But I think it's also important to recognise that we have a long, long way to go. And it might not be something we see, you know, perfectly uh, uh, materialising in the next year or five years or 20 years. Um, but at least it's kind of like a mountain we're, we're starting to climb. And I think that's, you know, also due to a c- huge collective effort of organisations, of civilians, of, of, you know, local civil society groups in uh, countries like Yemen, um, who've really kind of pulled together under different organisations and tried to say, look, this isn't okay, we can't keep doing this. Um, so I think it's kind of incumbent upon all of us to just to kind of listen to those voices now and, and at least maintain some kind of semblance of humanity, you know, in order to, to make change. Mark, as we near the end here, I think some of our listeners may still be wondering why a policy like this is necessary when protection of civilians is enshrined in international law and, and other domestic laws. Why is why is uh, releasing a policy like this still so essential and, and necessary in, in, in meeting those obligations? Very simply, the, the fact of the number of civilian deaths that we've seen in the past 20 years at the hands of the various governments and militaries that have been operating you know, worldwide. I mean, we have in Gaza over 20,000 reasons to, to do this work. We have the many thousands of Iraqis and Afghans who were killed, the Yemenis. I mean, there may be laws in place, but international humanitarian law, the, the laws of armed conflict that, that we know from the Geneva Conventions is an incredibly low bar, right? It's don't purposefully kill civilians. Right, that's it. Don't purposefully do it, but it doesn't mean that that killing civilians is a war crime. You know, I was a war crime investigator for the UN in in several different uh, countries, and one of the hardest things that I did was explain to people that hey, most civilian deaths in war are lawful. Uh, and so, with that in mind, what can be done to improve civilian protection? And I think this is a desperately needed policy. This is a desperately needed effort because of the work that organizations like Air Wars does. All right? they, they, they wouldn't exist if states were not killing civilians. And so these kind of protective measures are desperately needed. And you know, I look at it, what I started in, in, on the ground in 1999 in Kosovo on my first mission. And I, I was doing a, a battle damage assessment going around site to site with my my clipboard. And yes, weapon hit. Yes, weapon functioned properly. Civilian casualties. Uh, where do I put that? And I turned to my boss. I said, hey, sir, where do I put the CivCast? And he said, 
we don't track that. But now they do, right? Now they do. It's been all of these years later, they do. And so now it's time to improve how civilians are being protected. And it's not good enough to say, you can't just target civilians, right? Now you have to be able to say, what active steps are we taking to protect civilians? What active steps are we taking to mitigate that harm when it happens? Because it will happen, right? This is not going to be a, a policy that that removes civilian casualties from, from conflict at all, right? So how do we change things when we see things are going wrong? And then how do we respond, right? So when those when that harm does happen, what do we do about it? Do we, and, and how and why are we responding? And I, I look very much at what Secretary Austin said. He said, we have not only a legal requirement, but there is a moral and ethical element here. And so we as human beings have to look at how we are treating each other. And with that empathy, say, hey, what's happening is not all right. And we are going to improve what we do. And we're going to make sure that we take care of those that we harm. No, it's a really helpful reminder. And I'm reminded of something that Brian Finucane wrote in Foreign Affairs late last year when he said, the law of war permits vast death and destruction. This is true even under restrictive interpretations of the law. So it's really helpful to keep in mind. And Mark, you said earlier that Secretary Austin deserves some credit for this truly landmark policy. That's absolutely true. And I think a lot of the credit also goes to, to, to you and Emily and Air Wars and PAX and a lot of organizations who have been pushing for something like this since long before uh, Lloyd Austin became Secretary of Defense. So I want to I want to keep that in mind, and and I just want to open the floor to both of you as we near the end here. If you wanted to add anything, anything you wish I would have asked, and Emily, we can start with you. Yeah, no, just thank you so much. I think even the fact that we're talking about this issue, you know, on this podcast shows that it's something that you know is part of now our common uh, parlance, and it hasn't always been. I think you know the. The war in Ukraine and, and kind of the statements around civilian harm, particularly in the war in Ukraine from states, was, you know, I think a turning point for how conversations of this kind happen. And I think it would just be, it's it's important to remember that that, you know, all of those conversations and all of those discussions around then um, really recognize the value of, of civilians in conflict and the dignity of, of people affected by conflict. And I would just kind of say that it's important to remember that everywhere, uh, whether you're a civilian in, in Yemen or, or Somalia or uh, Kharkiv, you know, the, the important point is that you're a civilian affected by conflict and, you know, the the world has not dealt you a good hand. And I think it's, you know, it's good that we're able to talk about this in a constructive way, but just to take us back to the beginning and remember that, you know, not to appear too cold, essentially, um, that we are talking about uh, tragedy in, in that way. Mark, over to you for the last word. Yeah, I just want to finish by saying that when, when I left the Pentagon, there was very much a, an adversarial relationship between NGOs and the military. And that's changed dramatically. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we're always in lockstep, that we're holding hands, you know, sitting around the fire and, and singing songs at night together. But it means that there's a recognition that there is a level of, of knowledge and capability in NGOs that that we bring to the table and militaries require, they don't have. And also recognition on our side that militaries are staffed by human beings uh, who don't want to hurt people and want to improve what they're doing. And so we need desperately to work together to come to better ends. And I'm, I'm hopeful that this policy is a first step in, in making that happen and that we're going to see better outcomes 
because you know we've we've been dealing now with over two decades of just dramatic loss of human life and loss of life in just the most violent way possible. And so we need to recognize that and try to improve improve the way that we treat each other as human beings. Thanks. Mark Arlasco and Emily Tripp, thank you both so much for taking the time and joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. And thanks for caring about this. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.